digging into deals. This is Industry Focus. Hello, everyone. I'm Christine Hargis, your host of Industry Focus Healthcare Edition. I've got Motley Fool contributor Todd Campbell on Skype as usual. And I'm pleased to welcome into the studio with me special guest healthcare analyst Michael Douglas. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. Good to be back. Great to have you back on, Michael. (laughs) So we've discussed this before plenty of times. Deals, M&A, huge topic for 2015. It was the biggest year ever for mergers and acquisitions, both globally and just within healthcare. We did an M&A highlights episode on December 16th, and I was chatting with Michael about the concept of M&A and how to go about thinking about the strategy behind it. So Michael proposed to me this really awesome framework, and so we wanted to have him on the show to just chat a little bit about it and maybe go through some examples from the year and figure out exactly how you can apply this way of thinking about mergers to some very specific examples. So, Michael, without further ado, how are you thinking about M&A? Sure. So um, I think that when you when you really break down um, mergers and acquisitions, there are some, some very clear um, uh, strategies that are involved in them. And, and so I think that the, the decision making around them seems to sort of fall around three axes. Um, and those I would call intent, um, which is essentially, what are you planning to do? What are you trying to get? Are you trying to get better at something that you're already good at uh, or get scale in that? Are you trying to get into something new? Are you trying to do a tax inversion? Um, I think the second piece then is, um, what's your risk appetite? You know, are you looking for really early stage? You know, the small cap biotechs that everybody kind of talks about in, in in the growth space in healthcare. Are you talking about uh, let's say somewhat less risky biotechs that are still not commercial? Uh, you've got your primary asset in phase three, um, or uh, and and have phase two data out. Maybe even have phase three data out. Or you're looking for a company that has really. Um, uh, is already commercial, you know, a, a, a big, a big already successful company, and of course, the amount you're going to pay is going to kind of depend on how much your your risk appetite is, um, which then gets us to the third piece, which is what I would call the mechanism. So that's that's thinking through: um, Are you licensing a drug? Um, so are you, you know, when when you're signing this deal, um, are you? Uh, basically agreeing to be the marketing partner for this drug, um, and so you're paying a royalty out. Um, is it kind of a licensing plus equity investment, which is something that we see Celgene doing a lot? And I don't want to get too much into that because we'll be talking about it more later, but um, very much something that Celgene does a great deal in their, um, in their M&A when they're going after drugs um, so that they can then get an opportunity to kind of participate in a smaller cap biotech's growth, and so their shareholders can benefit from that. Or thirdly, are, are you just looking to buy them? Uh, is this a is this a, a straight up purchase? Um, and so I, I think that those three things kind of interlock into this kind of complicated mechanism for thinking about um, how um, how these deals go through and how they work. And I think that by by looking along these three axes, we can really kind of categorize deals and understand them, and then look out for potential pitfalls. So what I really love about this way of thinking about it is that it's very visual. I'm a very visual person, so of course that's going to appeal to me. But you have your three axes, and not only is that a reminder that, oh, like three-dimensional thinking, we're so multifaceted, because you know you look at a deal sometimes and it's something will stand out as, oh, they're doing this for tax inversion. That's all anybody wants to talk about. But there are the other two dimensions to it. Mm-hmm. And I also want to point out that they exist on a spectrum, too. Mm-hmm. So you don't have binary options 
you know, three of them. You have an entire scale of, say, your risk appetite could range from very, very low to very, very high. Same thing for your other two axes, your intent and your mechanism. So with that in mind, Todd, do you want to pick an M&A story from 2015 and we'll walk through it? Yeah, well, we can. There's, <laughs> there were a ton. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of a target-rich environment. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, record year for M and A deals in the healthcare space this past year. And you know, you you had touched on. You know, these aren't mutually exclusive. When you look at these deals, you know, there may be multiple reasons for doing a deal. Um, and and I thought that one place to start, so that we could kind of talk about some of these issues was with the granddaddy deal of them all for 2015. And that's um, Pfizer's proposed acquisition of Allergan uh, in a $160 billion combination. Yeah, this would create the largest pharma on the planet, looking at potentially generating $25 billion in cash flow beginning in 2018. The two companies together would have 100-plus mid-to-late-stage programs. This is just a mammoth, colossal deal, and I think you are right on the money in starting with talking about this one. Yeah, you're talking about uh, Pfizer's combining a $48 billion, uh, $48 billion in sales without other than $16 billion in sales to create a company that's doing $64 billion or the B uh, in the sale of, of medicines that are widely used throughout throughout the globe. And, you know, you know, Michael, we were talking about, you know, the different reasons behind some of these deals. And, you know, you look at it and you say, well, there are some things that, that Pfizer is getting in this deal that multiple things they're they're getting obviously new drugs mm-hmm. uh botox obviously and and some eye care drugs that are also important um but they're also going to benefit from some potential tax savings that are associated with this deal yeah when you look at intent on this deal to me that's what stands out is the tax savings and it's interesting because when you listen to the two companies talk about it they're kind of saying, "Oh no, it's it's not really the tax. It's it's because of you know other strategic importances." And that's, that's actually a phrase I'm stealing from the conference call: is strategic importance of the franchises. Yeah, Pfizer's Ian Reid uh, actually was quoted. He said, "Well, on the, once again, I want to stress that we're not doing this transaction simply as a tax transaction. We're doing this because of the strategic importance of the franchises, the revenue growth we believe we can get both in the U.S. and internationally, and the importance of this to combine the research approaches." Um, which which to me really highlights the fact that like yes tax, definitely part of it. But there's also this sort of like additional growth in areas that Pfizer hasn't been that involved in. Um, And so to me, this is like an opportunity to kind of reach into some of these new markets. And just to back up a little bit and give the background about why tax is even coming into play here. So Pfizer is a US-based company. And so they're technically the way the deal is arranged is that Allergan, which is based in Ireland, would be buying Pfizer. So the company would be able to re-land its headquarters over in a country that has a much, much lower corporate tax rate. Yeah, or at right. least the U.S. The corporate tax rate currently is 35%, right, which is the highest in the industrial world. Um, obviously, you know, we employ a lot of people in our corporations to help lower those tax rates. So the effective tax rate for Pfizer um, is in the low to mid 20s. So we'll say 23.4%, I think, through the first nine months of the year, right? By con- moving their headquarters overseas, they think that they can reduce that to 17 to 18% over the first couple years and maybe get it as low as 15% um, further out. If they were to do that, 
estimates peg the savings at about $2 billion a year, which is about what, by the way, the company says that they'll save in, quote-unquote, synergies. So. so having covered intent, and we've touched a little bit on mechanism. Um, it's a purchase. Yeah, yeah <laughs> clearly. Uh, to be specific, Allergan shareholders will be receiving 11.3 shares of Pfizer stock for each share they have of Allergan, which is kind of interesting because if you look at the two share prices right now, they don't reflect that multiple. Um, right now, right before the show, I pulled some numbers. Pfizer's trading for $32. Allergan's at $306. That's a multiple of 9.6. You would think that if this deal were you know, done and set, Allergan should be trading for a multiple of 11.3. But right now, uh, the multiple of 11.3 would bring you to $359, which is almost an 18% premium over what it's actually trading for. So clearly, there's some suspicion here about whether or not this deal will actually go through. Yeah. Or you know, there, there are a number of possible, uh, possible outcomes there. You know, it, it could be that there's you know the U.S. has really pushed back against the whole tax inversion thing in general, so there are probably concerns about that. There are probably concerns about whether it'll actually go through. Um, a number, a number of possible things there, um, and um, so yeah, that's that's mechanism there. Thinking about risk appetite, you know, this is a commercial stage company buying another commercial stage company. Um, so I would say that your 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 kind of risk of things just totally imploding with this deal, if it were to go through, fairly low. Um, just because you know, when you compare this to like a biotech in phase one, you know your 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 chance of success, essentially, you know these drugs um, continuing to be marketed and continuing to do well, very high in comparison. Yeah, you know what you're getting with Allergan. It's a mature company. Yes, right. I mean, they're looking at. It, they're saying this is a this is a great cash flow deal. Yeah, you're, we're paying a lot for uh, in multiple to sales to to do the deal, mm-hmm. but at the same time this is going to kick out a tremendous amount of cash flow that we can use to either do additional deals down the road or to continue to return money to shareholders via dividends uh, and buybacks. Yeah. So let's uh, change the subject a little bit and talk about a different set of companies. Michael, do you want to choose one? Yeah, sure. Let's do um, Selgin and Juno. Uh, and I talked about Selgin a little bit earlier. It's you know, signposting. I, I, I can't resist. Um, but um, so what Selgin did with Juno as they signed this sort of 10-year agreement, uh, development and marketing agreement. Um, Celgene pays a billion dollars up front. Um, that includes $150 million for the drug and an equity investment in Juno of $850 million for a little bit more than 9 million shares at a price of $93 a share. Um, when you... Um, so, uh, clearly, right there, we know our mechanism, right? This is a licensing plus equity investment deal. Um, and Celgene gets to name a board member to Juno. Uh, to Juno's board of directors, and actually, Selgin shareholders get Selgin gets the potential to actually increase its uh, stake in Juno uh, over the next several years, assuming certain conditions are met and approval by everybody, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of optionality for Selgin here to sort of grow um, its its presence in Juno with Juno's success. Um, so your mechanism is very clear, yet complicated. Yet complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thinking about risk appetite, you know, Juno is largely a, a fairly early stage company. You know, you've got you've got some assets in phase two, you've got a lot of assets in phase one. Um, so, 
I would consider this to be on the riskier end. It's very much along the lines of Celgene, where in a lot of ways they, they kind of behave almost like a VC, right? Where they'll basically go into these early stage companies, pay a relatively small amount up front to then have all this optionality if one thing pans out. Um, and it's very much kind of a, a biotech investor's way of investing. Um, and it's panned out very well for Celgene. Um, not that they do that solely, but that has been kind of one of their big um, strategic focuses. Uh, over the last few years. So in looking at this deal with Juno, uh, how are you thinking about intent? I mean, you've touched on it a little bit where you could have a lot of upside, Mm -hmm. but what exactly is going on with Juno? So Uh, uh, go ahead, Todd. I I just think they're playing a a good amount of educated defense. You know, I mean, they make a lot of money, obviously, treating um, blood cancers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, CAR-T, which is, you know, what Juno has got under development is basically a, a, a new way of attacking uh, various cancers, and a lot of them are right up in in the wheelhouse of of what cell gene already markets into. Um, you know these these drugs basically that Juno's working on will re-engineer or supercharge your immune system to be able to better recognize cancer and destroy it. So I, I think part of it is cell genes looking at it and saying this could be a competitive threat down the road. Um, we can you know get some pretty cheap optionality here. Um, let's go ahead and get exposed to it. So yeah, it's a riskier deal, but you know, the upside is that, or I guess you could look at the intent of it saying, okay, well, you know, we already market into these very successfully. If it's successful, we could leverage that uh, and be able to, you know, really ramp these up quickly. And at the same time, we sort of protect ourselves against a future competitor. Yeah, I, I would definitely say, you know, when, you, when you're thinking about intention, it's, you know, in my head, it's kind of either you're gaining scale in areas of current expertise, right, which is in a lot of ways safer because it's an area of expertise. You already know kind of how things work, and so you can make very good educated guesses. Um, if you're moving into a, a new disease area or a lot of new disease areas, kind of like Pfizer is doing with Allergan, that does introduce some potential risk because it's not your core area of expertise. Now, of course, if you've got a company with um, drugs already on the market like Allergan does, then it's like, okay, well, we already know it works. We already know what sales it's bringing in. You know, we can model that pretty reasonably. Um, and then, of course... Um, financial engineering is kind of its own its own special beast um, with uh, with uh, I'm sure lots of uh, lots of in-house counsel and, and outside tax lawyers being involved. Um, but I would definitely view this as gaining scale, gaining additional uh, additional firepower in an area of current expertise for Celgene. You know, Michael, you mentioned financial engineering, and that reminds me of one of the most interesting parts of this deal when it first came out. Uh, one of our Motley Fool healthcare writers, Brian Arelli, wrote this really awesome article where he dug into the actual financials behind the deal. And the way that it was stated and the way everybody interpreted it when it was first announced was $1 billion deal. It's $150 million upfront plus $850 million for 9.1 million shares, which, as you mentioned earlier, would value it at about $93 a share. This was a substantial premium to what Juno was trading for mm-hmm. at the time. And so there's this whole big discussion around why is Celgene paying so much for these shares of Juno? But And I'm going to quote from Brian's article because he did a fantastic job of, of walking through exactly why that's not the way to go about thinking about it. So he says, the reason for the nine and some million shares is to give Celgene an approximately 10% stake, but the $93 price tag is completely meaningless. Imagine if Celgene paid $1 per share for the nine million shares and paid an upfront payment of, and gives a very specific number, 990 million and some. 
while the drug licensing terms remain the same. So investors could have freaked out and thought that Juno was giving away 10% of the company for nothing, but the results of that transaction would be exactly the same, mm-hmm. where Celgene gets 10% of Juno, Juno gets $1 billion. So that $93 price tag, while it was right there in the announcements, was kind of meaningless. Yes. Uh, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, it, it really, truly was. Um, and I'm glad you brought up that point. Yeah. Um, and I'd love to encourage our listeners to check out that article. If, if you want me to send you a link to it, happy to do so. Please email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Again, this was a, an article written by Brian Orelli. So one last thing before we sign off, I want to follow up on a company that we talked about pretty recently on the podcast that had some interesting news. Todd, do you want to go from here? You know, I think it's perfect time to mention this because one of the things we're discussing is the various ways that companies tie up with one another. And, you know, one of those ways is through licensing deals. Um, And one of the most, I guess, talked about uh, drugs to make it to market in 2015 was Mankind's Afreza, uh, a drug that, you know, had a circuitous path to approval. Uh, It's an inhaled insulin. A lot of people thought this could be a, a reshape dramatically how diabetics um, treat themselves on a daily basis. Uh, they inked a deal, Santa Fe did, um, with mankind. Santa Fe is going to be the, as the co-marketer. Um, they license basically the, the, uh, the rights to the drug to market the drug uh, and to split costs and, and, and potential profit. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, the deal didn't pan out. Um, even though the FDA approved the Afreza and it's been on the market since last February, sales have been, you know, anemic. And so Santa Fe, as was their right, walked away. They said no. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's it's a pretty. Um, we had talked about this in prior episodes, and it's been written about on the Motley Fool website uh, about how Santa Fe had the option to exit the partnership in January, and that was certainly a real risk, given that the sales weren't ramping up. Um, you know, one of the other things that investors always have to look at and say, okay, you know, you know, does the deal make sense? Does the licensing deal make sense? And if the drug isn't going to sell, is there a risk that the value in, in the, in the company that's licensing the drug is going to change dramatically if that person walks away? And that's exactly what we've seen the course of the past week since Santa Fe's made its announcement that it's stepping aside. Um, so I think that investors have to realize that just because a company licenses a drug, doesn't necessarily mean that um, it's going to be a slam dunk that the the company who developed the drug is going to thrive. Yeah, there are tremendous risks uh, all across the board. And and, and by the way, Christine and Todd are both being a little bit um, uh, humble about this whole thing. So I'm going to go ahead and talk it up a little bit. Um, they, you both, uh, on a previous episode, had basically been like, you know, we we don't really see it uh, being that likely that Sanofi is going to stay in this deal. And you're right. Here at The Motley Fool, we believe in calling ourselves out when we're wrong, and it happens. It's happened to all of us. But I just want to call out the two of you for uh, for, for nailing this one. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Uh, probably a good time to remind everybody that people on the show could have interest in the stocks that they talk about. Motley Fool could have formal rec- recommendations for or against. So... As much as I know you want to put your faith in just what Todd and I say from here on out, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Um, So with that, uh, I guess that brings us to a close. I want to thank you so much, Michael, for being on the show as a special guest. Hope you come back with regularity. Um, And thank you for presenting this framework. I think it is a really helpful way of thinking about a theme that was huge in 2015 and looks to be pretty big for 2016. Todd, thank you as well, as always, for your contributions. And folks, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.